Good morning, dear friends. Um, if you're wondering, I'm RD. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we're delighted to have you. Uh, there's one matter of housekeeping that we have to look after before we get down to God's Word. Friends, um, on this Sunday, I duly read the bands of marriage for Tyler and Chelsea. Yeah, that's worth a woohoo. They will be wed here by the grace of God uh, next Saturday at 2 p.m. And I have to legally ask if anyone has any objection. I don't know. Tell it to the sun. I know, but seriously, come see me if you know any reason why they can't legally marry. Okay, that's all out of the way. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Your word that is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Thank you for your spirit that's here at work among us already, leading us into truth. I pray, God, that this morning you would recalibrate our hearts around the truth of your love for us in Jesus and the hope and the confidence that that brings. We commit this time to you, to the greater glory of his name. Amen. Okay, Bible's open to Acts chapter 20, which Christina ably read. Not a small task with all those names in there. Well done. We've got a lot happening in our text this morning, and what I want to set out before you is how we're going to look at this text, okay? Because I think it's critically important that we set it out up front. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a survey of the three major narrative thrusts in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. Now, as it happens, those three narrative thrusts are set out in your ESV Bible with paragraph breaks. Do you see it in front of you? Three chunks. We're going to look at those and survey over top of them to see what's happening in the text. And then we're going to zero in on application. Okay, that's how we're going to approach this. So let's have a look at the very first narrative chunk, verses 1 to 6. As we're turning there and looking there, a map is coming up behind me. Because what you have in these verses 1 to 6 is a detailing of the tail end of Paul's third missionary journey. We're told that he leaves Ephesus, verse 1. We know from the account in Acts that he spent approximately three years there. And now he's eventually on his way back to Jerusalem. Do you see that on the map? Okay, let's see. So, bonus points if you can point to Ephesus on the map. He's making his way back down here to Jerusalem. Okay? Um, we're, we're told in the account that he intends to get to Jerusalem to deliver the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, and then to make his way all the way across to Rome, which on the map would be somewhere over there. <laughs> right? And in Rome, he's going to set up a, a base for the gospel because he wants to go from Rome all the way to the end of the world in Spain. But for now, it's Jerusalem that looms large in the mind of Paul the Apostle. Verse 2 tells us that Paul spent several months visiting churches that he had founded in Macedonia on his second missionary trip. Places like Philippi up here and Thessalonica and Berea. 
These are all places that he's now visiting that he established churches in on his second missionary journey. Verse 2 tells us that he went there to encourage them. The Greek literal word here for encouragement carries with it the meaning of appeal, entreaty, exhort, comfort, console. After three months encouraging the saints up in here, he then makes his way down into Corinth. It's called Greece here at the end of verse 2, but that's where he's going. Spends another three months there in Corinth during the winter, we see in verse 3. Verses 4 to 6, it says that along with his companions, and note that all of these companions are listed by name, just to remind us that Christianity is never a solitary, solo endeavor. So he, he now has all of his companions, and they're making their way to Troas. Where's Troas? I know I saw it earlier this morning. Bottom where? Tell me left or right. Warm, cold. Oh, right there. Okay, so that's where they're heading. Okay. But it's while they're back here, it's while they're back here in Macedonia that Paul writes the letter that we call 2 Corinthians. It's this moment. It's while he's in Greece on this part of the trip that he writes the letter that we call Romans. So this is actually pretty critical time on this third missionary journey for Paul. And after that, as we said, he makes his way up to Troas. So that's our very first narrative thrust. A bit of a travelogue of Paul's tail end of his third missionary journey. Look at the second narrative thrust in verses 7 to 12. Now, this one is really important. You can drop the map. We don't need it anymore. This, this next second narrative thrust is important because it shows us a pattern that's programmatic for the Apostle Paul's ministry. It also shows us the pattern of the early church. Look at verse 7. The first thing that you'll notice about the early church, programmatic for Paul's ministry and important for churches ever since then, in verse 7, is that they gather together on the first day of the week when they were gathered together. To be a church, by definition, means a gathering of Christians who come together. If you want to grow in Christ, there are three things that are necessary. Let me state this negatively. If you notice that your love for the Lord Jesus Christ is growing cold, it's because one of these three things is missing. These three things that are critically important to your walk with the Lord. The first one is regular Bible reading and Bible study. The second is regular prayer. And the third is Christian fellowship. The church, we're told in verse 7, gathers together. Well, we certainly witnessed the importance of gathering together over those couple of years of COVID restrictions, didn't we? When we were prevented from meeting together, I have to confess that I, I actually saw individuals and families who, for now at least, have fallen away from Christ. So critically important it is for us to gather together in person. 
So verse 7, the church gathers together. That's the first thing to notice. They, notice, they, they gather together here, we're told, on the first day of the week. And that would have been noticeable. Here is already a point of departure from the earliest Christians and their Jewish counterparts. The Jews gathered together on the seventh day of the week in order to observe the Old Testament Sabbath. The Christians gathered together on the first day of the week. Do you know why? It's the Lord's Day. Because Christians gather together not explicitly to celebrate Sabbath, but to, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Happened on a Sunday. So they gathered together on the first day of the week. Now at this point in the development of the earliest church, these Christians were likely still observing both. Right? They were probably still gathering in the synagogues. We're told that Paul often would get together in the synagogue and teach and preach. They'd gather together on the Sabbath, and then they'd meet together as the church on the Lord's Day. So the first notable point that's programmatic and instructive is that the church gathered together. The second one, verse 7, they gathered together to, say it out loud, break bread. That's right. Now you're reading this in Acts and you wonder, is this the Lord's Supper, this breaking of bread, or is this some kind of fellowship meal? And the answer is yes. It's both. When the Christians gathered together on the first day of the week, they celebrated both the Lord's Supper and also a fellowship meal. Here at St. George's, we weekly gather around the Lord's table to celebrate communion. And we do so because we believe that this is biblically normal for churches. We do so because when the Lord Jesus Christ instituted this sacrament, he did so as a special means of grace whereby Christian men and women who receive these elements by faith a miracle takes place, not in the bread, not in the wine, but in the heart of the believer, where those elements become to you the body and blood of Christ, where you are nourished and fed specially by his grace. So we gather together around the Lord's table and we break bread. But here at St. George's, we also like to eat, don't we? Every Sunday after church, we um, have fellowship time. Coffee and cookies and tea and sometimes donuts. Those were great last week. We gather together monthly for our monthly potluck. And we don't just do that to enjoy each other's company. We do that because that's what Christians do. They break bread together. On, on men's group, we have Bacon and eggs and sausages and beans and all. It was just, it's delicious. Don't miss it. You know, every month we gather together at Kelvin and Shelley's house. And we, what do we do? Well, there's a time for testimony and a time for prayer. But we eat together. Look, don't make too little of this. There's something rich and important, not only in Christians gathering together, not only in Christians gathering at the Lord's table, but also in Christians eating together. There's a depth of fellowship that comes when you break bread together, isn't there? 
It's loaded right into the word companion. Have you ever thought about that? Com, together. Panion, bread. Companions are people who eat together. Well, the early church enjoyed and were strengthened by the Lord's Supper and by regular meals together as they ate together. The third thing, so they, so they gather together, they break bread. So look at that in verse 7. Gather together, they break bread. And then what's the third thing? Paul talked with them. They gather together, they break bread, and they devote time to apostolic teaching and preaching. The word of God. Paul talked to them. Paul preached the word to them, no doubt. It, it even uses words like disgust, right? They talked about. He talked to them. This is the centrality of the word of God in the life of the Christian community. And you know, I was reading this this week and I thought, oh, for a church that talks more and more about the word of God. Amen? It just does this pastor's heart so much good every time I hear you guys talking to one another and you use a phrase like, well, what does God's word say? It's rich and it's powerful. The Christians gathered together, they broke bread, and Paul talked apostolic teaching. God's word is central when we gather. Not only when we gather in worship, but what about in fellowship time? Wouldn't it be great if we committed to pushing past pleasantries and the weather and the Leafs games? And we actually talk to one another about the Lord Jesus Christ? See, that's true in deep Christian fellowship. So here we see this normative picture of the church in this second narrative thrust. They gather together to break bread and Paul talked to them. Verses 7 to 8. We're told that Paul gives this sermon, this talk, and, you know, get comfortable. It's a long one. <laughs> he starts at supper time and he goes till midnight. Verse 8, it says that the lamps were all in the room and they were, they were burning. Why do you think that detail is important? Well, partly because it's nighttime and they didn't have electricity, right? But that detail is also important for what's about to come because there were so many lamps in this room, in the upper room on the third floor where Paul was teaching and they had gathered and they were breaking bread. There were so many oil lamps burning that these lamps were using up all of the available oxygen in the room. Verse 9. So we see that this Eutychus falls into a deep sleep. And then he falls out of a third-story window. He hits the ground with a thud and he dies. And listen, it's, it's kind of a laughable story, but it's only laughable because you know how it works out. If you imagine being there that night as the church was gathered together, breaking bread, and Paul was preaching to them till midnight... If you imagine this moment, you imagine it with horror. Eutychus, verse 9, was a young man or a lad. 
If we look at the Greek word that's used here in verse 9, we actually know that Eutychus was somewhere between 8 and 14 years old. That gives you a different perspective on it, doesn't it? Just a young fellow. This poor guy. You know, anyone who's ever sat through a sermon that's too long can empathize with this. Amen? I was even thinking this week about those in our congregation who are like the same age as Eutychus. You've just recently graduated in the last year or two from our kids' ministry program. And now you sit in here through sermons that range anywhere from 35 to 50 minutes. God bless you guys. But you know what has encouraged the socks off me lately? Some of our 10 and 11-year-old kids are taking sermon notes. I hold on to those sermon notes, and I'm going to whip them out on their wedding day when I marry them. It's so encouraging to see little young kids soaking up and paying attention to the Word of God, even when the sermons are long. You know, just a quick note on sermon length. Paul's sermon goes from uh, supper time till midnight and beyond. You know intuitively and experientially that sometimes a 10-minute sermon is way too long, and sometimes a 50-minute sermon isn't long enough. It isn't about the length of the sermon. It's about the activity of the Holy Spirit revealing the Word of God. When the Word of God is being held forward, sermon length is not an issue. Paul preaches from supper time till midnight. But what we have shaping up here in this Eutychus event is a perfect storm. So I mentioned briefly that um, the lamps are burning up all the available oxygen. Paul is bearing down for a long one. And packed into this third-story room, there is just a lot of humanity. <laughs> Can you imagine what it's... Anyway, verse 9. And Paul, it says talked still longer. Eutychus nods off. You gotta, you gotta put yourself in this moment to really imagine the scene. You know, we, we read this in this tragic moment when this young boy falls asleep and falls out the window and dies, but just the very name Eutychus tips us off as the readers about how this is going to work out because Eutychus itself means the lucky one. Okay, he falls out the window, third story. Paul, verse 10, look at verse 10. Paul went down, so he descended the stairs, or however you get from third story to first back in the day. He went down. He approaches Eutychus. He bends over him. He takes Eutychus in his arms. And then he looks to the entire crowd that's gathered around and he says, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Okay, this is, this is worth noting. Paul is not saying, do not be alarmed, he's still alive, it was a mere flesh wound. We, we know that Eutychus is dead. And we know it both from common sense and from context. Let me tell you what I mean. 
Just this past week, I had the joy of going skiing up at Blue Mountain with my son. It was a bit of a windy day, and we were sitting on one of the chairlifts, and we were going up over top of this place where the valley went way down beneath us. And it was just the two of us on this chairlift, and so the wind was blowing it. And I was honestly feeling a little vulnerable. And I looked down into this deep valley, and I remember having the thought, boy, that's probably about three stories. I thought, I don't think I'd survive that. Look, if you fall from three stories, you're going to die. So we know that that's true just from, con- from, from the immediate um, reality and from common sense. But we also know that Eutychus died because of context. When Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is recording this, He presents it in such a way that it draws parallels to other places in Scripture where people die and then they are miraculously brought back to life. Can you think of any of those? We know that Eutychus is dead here because this account mirrors the ministry of Jesus. Back in Luke 7, when Jesus raises the widow of Nain's son, Similar account. Luke chapter 8, when Jesus brings back to life Jairus' daughter. Or the famous one in John chapter 11, where Jesus calls forth and brings back to life stale, dead Lazarus. We know that Eutychus is actually dead here because there's an even closer literary parallel with Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah bends over, the exact same as Luke presents it here, he bends over the widow of Zarephath's son and raises him back to life. Dead as a doornail, dead as a stone, Elijah lays over him and raises him back to life. Same thing as what happens here with Paul and Eutychus. 2 Kings chapter 14, 2 Kings chapter 4, where Elisha comes upon the Shunammite's son. And similar to Paul over Eutychus, similar to Elijah in 1 Kings 17, he bends over him and he raises him from death to life. The, the scripture has these moments, and we know that Eutychus has fallen from a third story window and he's truly dead. Because the way that the story is presented is in parallel to these other accounts. Do you understand what I mean? Eutychus is dead. Paul goes downstairs, bends over him, takes him in his arms, tells the crowd, do not be alarmed, and raises him back to life. Verse 11. Sounds almost nonchalant, doesn't it? Paul has a bite to eat. And then he goes back to conversing for all of what remained of that night. Then he departed. Verse 12. Here's another beautiful understatement in Scripture. Eutychus was shown alive to everyone, and they were not a little comforted. 
So here's this second narrative thrust, okay? In this, we see verses 7 to 12, we, we behold both a biblically normal church gathering. It's instructive for churches today with those three elements. They gather together, they break bread, they gather around the word. It's biblically normal church gathering in this narrative thrust. But it's also an exceptional moment with the raising of Eutychus. If, if you're a, a Bible nerd like I am and you read forward from this point, you'll notice that this is the last miracle wrought by God through Paul that Luke records in the book of Acts. This is an exceptional moment. So that's the second narrative thrust. Final third narrative thrust, verses 13 to 16. Verse 13, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos. We, it tells us that Luke and the gang are actively convincing Paul to journey by boat and not by land. They are making their way to Jerusalem and they are hastening to be there, verse 16, for the Feast of Pentecost. In this third narrative thrust, though, we see the various places where Paul stops to encourage the saints. And we behold Paul as the consummate pastor, giving his time, giving himself to the strengthening and the encouraging of the churches. All right, so there, there you have it. Three narrative thrusts, and we've surveyed them all. Now, you, you have those in your notes or in your mind, and you think, well, that's all well and good, R.D. Sure, that's what the Bible says in the passage, but what of it? What should we take from this account in Acts? Why did Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, include all these details? There are two themes in these verses that we've looked at. They are two themes that are not obvious in any English translation, but they stand in relief and in contrast. They jump out of the text in the original Greek. There are two sets of repeated words. Now, mind you, they're not directly in parallel, but they're presented in ways that would have caught the attention of the original audience. If, you, if you'd heard this passage read in its original language, these two themes would not have been lost on you, and this would be the application. I just want to point this out that when you're reading the Bible, look for repeated words because they often are the key to unlocking the meaning and the application of the passage. Here's the first word set. Verse 1 and verse 10. Verse 1, it says, after the uproar ceased. Now, you and I know that that's the uproar that was the riot back in Ephesus, right? So, so that's the first one. After the uproar ceased. Look at verse 10. Paul, standing over the body of Eutychus, looks to the crowd that's gathered and he says, do not be, what's the word in English? Alarmed. Now, friends, here's the amazing thing about this passage. While they are two different words in English by the translators, in Greek, they are the same word. 
after the trouble ceased, verse 1. Verse 10, Paul is over top of Eutychus and he looks at the crowd and says, do not be troubled. That's the first word set. The second word set is seen in verse 1, verse 2, and implied in verse 10. Look at verse 1. Here, the words are repeated in English. Verse 1, it says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Verse 2, when he had gone through all those regions and had given them much encouragement. That's right, same word. Verse 10, this idea of encouragement is also implied when Paul says, do not be troubled. So here it is. This is the singular theme that unites both Paul's travelogue and the Eutychus moment. Encouragement that displaces trouble. That's what this is all about. See, this passage begins with this uproar, with this trouble in Ephesus that precedes Paul's departure for Macedonia. And we remember back from chapter 19 that for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel is itself troubling, is it not? But for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What are the troubles that are besetting you today? I'm all too aware that we come to church on Sunday and carry with us many burdens. Some are great and some are small, but they're troubles. Maybe you're here this Sunday morning and you're carrying with you the trouble of a difficult medical diagnosis and prognosis. It can be very troubling. Maybe you're carrying with you the trouble of family dysfunction or grief. Perhaps it's trouble with your career. Perhaps it's the trouble of exams coming up. Perhaps it's something more existential, just like the, the trouble that feels like is in the air over the last couple of years. But you have this sense of trouble, of uproar. Well, this passage reminds us that there is encouragement in the gospel that speaks to you and to your trouble. Let me tell you what I mean. Troubles come and troubles go for men and women who are Christians and men and women who are not. Jesus said the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Trouble is part of this life. But the Christian man or woman who is feeling deeply anxious and the troubling is robbing them of their peace and their confidence, it's because you're living out of a false narrative about God. It's because you're living out of a false narrative about who you are in Christ and how the world works under the sovereign hand of God. And so to displace those troubles with encouragement 
means to return back to the truth of who God is. Who you are in Christ. How God has a sovereign hand on everything that happens. Friends, that is encouragement that displaces trouble. So Paul does not depart from Ephesus and the troubles before encouraging them. You see that in verse 1? And then verse 2, he takes that very same encouragement on to his next destinations. Okay, the next use of the word trouble is in Troas as Paul is standing over top of Eutychus, lifeless body. Verse 10, do not be alarmed, do not be troubled. Now here what we see is gospel encouragement pushed to its absolute limit. Look, it's one thing for you to be encouraged with the daily troubles of life, strengthened in the face of challenges and hardship. That's one thing, and it's no small thing, but it's yours in the gospel. It is a categorically different thing. It is an extreme thing when we're talking about the troubles of your final foe, that is death. But in the account of Eutychus, what we see is more than just a magic trick of revivication. We see a foreshadowing and a foretaste of resurrection. This resurrection, a new life that awaits not only Eutychus, but every Christian man and every Christian woman. This is encouragement that displaces ultimate trouble, the trouble of death. That as a Christian, you are promised death that leads to new life. Now look, friends, let's press into this for a moment. This is encouragement that displaces even your greatest troubling, your fear of death. That Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has paved the way for all who follow him. And so you and I are intended to read this account of Eutychus and to find encouragement that displaces the trouble even of our own dying. So you read this account and you wonder, what would Paul's encouragement to these churches that he's visiting on the tail end of his third missionary journey sound like? What would have informed his encouragement to the souls of those who were standing over lifeless Eutychus? Friends, I think his encouragement would have gone something like this. Before you were in Christ, you were living a life that led to death. This inevitable Damocles sword of your own mortality was hanging over your head, about to drop at any moment. You don't know. Is it now? Is it a day from now? Is it a week from now? Is it a decade? You live with this sense of existential dread and fear because you know that your life will lead to death. It 
it shapes this low-grade existential angst that someday you will die. That was before you were in Christ. But Paul's encouragement would have been to go on and say, but not so now for the Christian. For the Christian man or woman, your death is no longer someday in the distant or near future. It is true that someday you will breathe your last breath and you will die. But you will never taste death. You see, Paul sets out death as a particular theological category. Death is the wages of sin. So while it's true that even Christian men and women will breathe their last, they will close their eyes, they will die, they will never taste death. If Paul were here today, he'd encourage you with this. He'd say, Christian man or woman, you will die, but you will never face death. We have all sinned. We have all accrued a lifetime debt that we can never pay before God. It's a debt that demands death. And Jesus has already died the death that you earned and deserved on the cross. So now, death is no longer off on the horizon for you. Your death happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. Jesus has already died the death that you deserve. See, friends, this is encouragement that displaces trouble. All that awaits you in the future is nothing but life and glory forever and ever. Paul would use the language that he uses in 1 Corinthians, and he'd say, look, when you close your eyes and you die, be encouraged. All that's happening is you are shedding off this earthly tent. Your faith will become sight. Paul can make bold statements of encouragement, and he can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Death has been swallowed up in life. This is what he tells the Christian cities that are surrounding the Mediterranean on his journey. This is what he tells the crowd that is gathered around Eutychus. Encouragement that displaces troubling. He says to them something like, you are a great sinner. And you have a greater Savior. You deserve death. But one has died for you so that you can live for him. Eutychus is raised to new life. And so too will you. Friends, this is the point of this passage in chapter 20. Encouragement that displaces trouble. People who are outside of Christ, they are living lives that are leading to death. Christian men and women, we know that our death will lead to ultimate life. And so be encouraged. Do not be troubled. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. 
I ask and pray that this morning the truth of the gospel would displace all of the troubling, whether it's specific troubles that we've carried with us this morning or just the general trouble and fear of death, that our hearts would be recalibrated around the gospel. That we would deeply know and trust that death does not await us, but life, because Jesus died for us. He bore the curse of our death. Lord, I pray that that would make us joyful and confident. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.